Please join us for our service already in progress. Schultz is the name of the comic artist behind the famous cartoon Peanuts. You know, with Charlie Brown and Snoopy and Linus and them. Uh, up on the screen is going to be a comic, and if you can't read it, I'll read it to you. But let's see if we can bring this up here. Some of you will be able to read this, but I'll read it for those who can't see it. So take a look at this cartoon here. Up in the top left, Charlie says, well, Sally, in a couple more weeks, you'll be starting kindergarten. And Sally says, kindergarten? And then Charlie Brown says, sure, everybody has to go to school. And Sally says, school? And Charlie says, of course, this is the way you become educated. Sally says, educated? And then Charlie says, I see trouble ahead for some poor teacher. And then Sally says, teacher? <laughs> Now, the reason we've got this is because for some of us, teaching and learning can sound like dreaded words. They conjure up ish, uh, images of harsh and unreasonable teachers giving you nerve-wracking pop quizzes or requiring long and boring essays. So when I talk about Christian learning and Christian teaching, some of you could go, oh, no, what have I walked into this morning? Well, Christian learning and Christian teaching should be anything but boring. It should transform us and help us live the life of joy God has for us. In fact, I'm indebted this morning to a little book by John Piper called Think. And the whole premise of the book is that deeper thinking makes you happier as you think more accurately about God. So if you want to be happy as a Christian, it comes when you worship God more deeply. And if you want to worship God more deeply, you're going to have to think about God more deeply. We're in a series looking at two words. The first word is disciple, and the second word is discipler. As Christians, we are both disciples or followers of Jesus. We are also disciplers or those who are helping others follow Jesus. We're jumping off of the very last verses in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus said to go and make disciples. And so if you remember, a disciple is a follower of Jesus who trusts Jesus alone for salvation, who learns about God and themselves from the Bible, who grows to be more like Jesus, and who serves others in love. That's a disciple. A discipler helps someone else follow Jesus by loving them with the love they've received in Jesus, by teaching them to know God from the Bible, by modeling Christian character and genuine friendships, and by coaching them to serve Jesus with joy. And so a disciple trusts, learns, grows, and serves. A discipler loves, teaches, models, and coaches. Last week, we saw the pair of a disciple trusts and a discipler loves. This week, we're looking at the pair of a disciple learns and a discipler teaches. 
So a disciple learns and a discipler teaches. If you have your Bible and are able, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word as we read from Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. God's word says this. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. How would you like that? You give your life to Christ, and next thing you know, you're being dragged by a mob to be arrested. They shouted, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security, that is um, like the bond, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And then when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. God, thank you for your word. Jesus, the stories we read are in and of themselves incredible, but it's even more incredible to know that these things really happened. That with, with something as simple as teaching the Bible, Paul and Silas were accused of turning the world upside down. I pray, Jesus, this morning that you help us on both levels. Help us as learners and as teachers. Jesus, the goal of this is not to make a big deal out of any of us here. The goal is that we would come to understand you and that we would indeed make much of Jesus. I pray, regardless of whether um, we come as those who love to learn and love teaching or those who really don't like learning much, that you would still light a fire in us this morning. That we would be those who would grow by your grace to worship you with our minds and to help others do the same. I ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, this first section out of Acts 17 is the story of teaching and learning in Thessalonica. And we're going to zoom in on verses 2 and 3. So I'm going to read those again. It said, on three Sabbath days or Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining 
and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So last week we were with Paul and Silas in Philippi. And remember, we went with them on that night where they were beaten and put in jail. And that from the jail, God had sent that miraculous earthquake that led to them having an opportunity to stop the jailer from killing himself and then to share the gospel with them. And we saw as the jailer and all his family believed. This week, we're continuing. They're, they're still in Europe. They're in uh, Macedonia, an, an area of Greece, and they're going on a journey. The journey from Philippi to Thessalonica is about 100 miles. And it's in Thessalonica that they begin another missionary work, going into the synagogue on three consecutive Saturdays to teach them the gospel. Now, there's two questions I want to ask of Acts 17. First, what did Paul teach? And second, what impact did Paul's teaching have? So, what did Paul teach? Well, the subject is laid out in those verses 2 and 3. In short, Paul's subject was Jesus. But it was Jesus from the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul set out to carefully show them uh, day after day for three weeks that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had to both die and rise from the dead. By this careful teaching, Paul wanted to persuade them to put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So look at verse 2, what it said there. It said, he reasoned with them. If you're an underliner, you can underline the word reasoned. That is, he didn't just want them to feel good. He didn't just want them to become a fan or somebody who liked Jesus. No, Paul was not just aiming for their hearts. He was aiming for their minds. He wanted them to believe in Jesus. He was also aiming for their wills. He wanted them to submit to Jesus. He was telling them to engage in some careful thinking. That was Paul's plan. And then, not just reason with them, but from the scriptures. You could underline the word scriptures. He wasn't just going to give his own personal philosophy or, or kind of stand up and get on his own soapbox. He assumed that these Jews and God-fearers believed that God had spoken in his word through the prophets. So Paul studied the Bible. He learned the Bible. He taught the Bible. He believed the Bible was the inerrant word of God and that it was all that was needed for both life and doctrine. It was from the scriptures that Paul taught. And then in verse 3, the words are explaining. You can underline explaining and proving. You can underline proving. Now, explaining is a, a figurative word. It literally means to open. And the idea here is that he, he was seeking to open their ears. Um, the, the same word can be used of when a, a woman gives birth and literally uh, the womb is open. But in this case, Paul is trying as best he can to lay open the meaning of the Bible to them, explaining it to them. And then proving. Well, this, this implies both teaching and demonstrating 
Uh, proving is a, a um, way of saying Paul's going to take a verse or a passage of Scripture and then with logical steps show it has to be fulfilled in only Jesus Christ. That, that this proves Jesus is who he claims to be. He'll start to do this, for instance, we'll see in Athens. He actually takes one verse out of the book of Job in order to show the men of Athens that there is only one God, not many gods, and that this one God created them and has mercy on them and so sent Jesus. So he is proving Jesus is the Messiah. And then in verse 3, that it was necessary, underline necessary, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. In a logical proof, things can be necessary or unnecessary, and they can be sufficient or insufficient. If something is unnecessary, it could be true, but it's not really relevant to the matter at hand. You can picture a courtroom where somebody stands up and just starts saying a true statement, and someone goes, but, but, but objection, is this relevant? And the judge can either sustain or, or he can overrule that depending on whether or not it is necessary to the matter at hand. Paul says that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead is absolutely necessary for us. In other words, it is relevant to our lives. But it's not just relevant, it's sufficient. Sufficient is not whether or not it applies, it's whether or not it can stand on its own. So something could be both necessary and insufficient. That is, it's relevant, but it doesn't tell the whole story. I need more evidence to be convinced. There's, there's other truths that have to come into play for me to be wholeheartedly bought in. Paul says, nah, -uh. death of Jesus Christ on the cross resurrection from the grave, necessary and sufficient for our salvation. In other words, this is absolutely relevant and it's all we need to be right with God. It's where we get the doctrine of faith alone. That because Jesus is the Christ and because he suffered and died on the cross in our place and because he rose from the dead, we can be saved. It was necessary and sufficient for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And so, in verse 3, it says, This Jesus whom I proclaim, can underline the word proclaim to you, is the Christ. Proclaim gets us out of the private study and into the public atmosphere. Proclaiming is a public word. In other words, this wasn't just Paul meeting one-on-one -on -one with someone to talk to them about God. He was doing it loud and clear for everyone to hear. The great truths of Jesus Christ are meant to be proclaimed publicly, openly for God's people. So what did Paul teach? That's what we asked. What was the content of Paul's teaching? Paul taught the gospel of Jesus, the crucified Savior and risen Lord. He taught the gospel from all scripture, especially using the Old Testament to teach Jesus. Paul taught the gospel by opening the eyes of his audience and demonstrating with many proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul taught the gospel required Jesus sacrifice himself for our sins on the cross and that Jesus rise victoriously from the dead. Paul taught the gospel publicly, not hiding any of these truths from the Thessalonians. And we'll see that he did the exact same thing with the Bereans. That's what Paul taught. 
Now, what impact did this teaching have? How did this affect the people in Thessalonica? Well, look first in verse 4. It says that some were persuaded. Some were persuaded. That is, they were convinced. They came to agree with Paul that Jesus is both the crucified Savior and the risen Lord, prophesied throughout the Old Testament. So first, their mind said, yes, I agree. But it didn't stop there. Look what it says next. It says, then they joined Paul and Silas. That is, their learning about God moved them to action. They committed their lives to Jesus Christ and demonstrated that by joining the new church in Thessalonica. And as we'll see, this commitment, this going from just, yeah, I'm convinced to, yeah, I'll join, had a cost. Jason and them are dragged before the authorities and have to post their, their bail in order to, to be let out that night. I mean, new Christians, man, they just hit it right from day one. We see, too, um, if we look at the Bereans, that they carefully searched and studied the scriptures with an excitement, like a, an eager appetite for learning. It's like if you've gone, you know, sometimes um, when I find out we're going to have a good Sunday meal and, and someone in the family is going to cook uh, uh, something I love, say there's some, some good fried chicken or like a nice roast, I might skip breakfast and then, you know, my stomach starts gurgling and everything. And when I get there, man, the smell just hits me and, and it's as if my, my stomach is ready for some of that roast and some of the mashed potatoes and gravy. The Bereans had that kind of appetite for scripture. It says they received the word with all eagerness, that appetite, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So what impact did Paul's teaching the Bible have? Well, to the Thessalonians and Bereans that we've mentioned so far, it changed everything. They were convinced in their minds so much that they moved with their actions to join and they dove into their Bibles. But not only did this careful teaching help son to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, it also provoked a very negative reaction from some of the Jews. They formed a mob. They had one of the Christians, Jason was probably new to the faith, arrested. And Paul and Silas, meanwhile, had to be snuck at night out of Thessalonica. So what's the point? Well, as Christians, we are called to both learn and to teach the gospel from all of Scripture, knowing this, knowing that the gospel is dangerous truth. The gospel was heard as good news to those whose ears were opened. But to the others, it not only sounded absurd, but dangerous. Right? You can hear many things throughout your day that just sound ridiculous. And you don't get a mob together to have people arrested over something that sounds ridiculous. It had to be dangerous for them to do what they did. And listen to what the Jews said about this teaching in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, it said, These men have turned the world upside down. How can having a Bible study turn the world upside down? How can learning 
the Bible turn the world upside down? It's because the gospel is dangerous truth. It's dangerous first to my glory. It's dangerous because the gospel of Jesus threatened the glory of the Jews who ruled that synagogue. They ruled it as if the point was to get glory for themselves. And so when the gospel comes in and the point becomes the glory of Jesus, to make much of Jesus, the Jews were jealous. That's exactly what it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 5. The Jews were jealous. It's the exact same kind of jealousy that fueled the Jewish leaders to have Jesus crucified. They were jealous. So the gospel first threatens my glory. It's also dangerous because it threatens my power or earthly powers. So the mob accuses the new Christians of treason. It says, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The gospel is dangerous because it threatens earthly power. In other words, the gospel tells us that there is a king of kings and a lord of lords, and that that is Jesus the gospel brings us into a new position in which our primary citizenship is no longer the United States of America, but the kingdom of heaven. And our primary king is no longer the president, but Jesus. And so, as a Christian, I think and believe that first, Jesus is Lord, before Caesar is Lord. The gospel not only threatens my glory and my power, it threatens my treasure Last week, we saw that Paul and Silas were thrown in jail in Philippi because Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, cast a demon out of a slave girl who could tell fortunes. And when the slave girl's demon was cast out, she could no longer tell fortunes. And her owners were so upset about that loss in revenue, they had Paul and Silas thrown in jail. So why is the gospel dangerous? Because it threatens my earthly treasure. It causes us to look at what has real, eternal value, heavenly treasure, and value that over what will rust. So, how does reading, learning, teaching the Bible turn the world upside down? Consider this. In the Bible, we learn that God creates and owns us. My life is not my life. It belongs to God. We learn in the Bible that God commands us. My life is not generally good because I've rebelled against God in sin. We learn in the Bible that God will pour out his wrath on us. When I sin, I am hurting someone. I'm hurting myself because I am damning myself to an eternity apart from God. We learn in the Bible that the measure of being good is higher than simply being true to myself. The Bible reveals objective good defined by a holy God and reveals how far short I fall. We learn in the Bible that God defines marriage, gender, life purpose, economy, authority. He defines all things and that these areas of life are not up to us to define for ourselves. And we learn in the Bible that despite our rebellion, God loves us. And he sent Jesus to save us 
from his wrath and that we are incapable of saving ourselves from that day. We learn in the Bible that in order for our sin to be forgiven, Jesus had to die on the cross in our place for our sins. He was the only sinless person in history, the only one who had a righteousness to give us. It was necessary for him to die. We learn in the Bible that in order for us to have hope for eternity, Jesus also had to rise from the dead. He had predicted it repeatedly, so if he didn't, he would have been a liar. But more than that, because Jesus rose from the dead, I can have hope that death is not the end, that there is something beyond death. We learn in the Bible that for us to be forgiven, we must choose to receive Jesus Christ alone in faith. We must trust his death and resurrection is necessary and sufficient to forgive us. We learn that being forgiven is not the end of the journey, but the beginning of our new lives in Jesus Christ. That he died not only to forgive us of our sins, but to free us from it. And so he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to change us day in, day out, to be more like Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can walk that lifelong learning process. We learn in the Bible that God has given us a new family, the church, to help us keep learning and applying the scriptures of Jesus throughout our lifetime. He even commands us to utilize the church as a gift. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Several Saturdays of Bible studies in Thessalonica turned the world upside down because some people were convinced that God loves them that much and willing to change their lives accordingly. That's how dangerous and how good the gospel is. Now, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 because we've talked about what Paul wanted them to learn But we now have to ask the question, suppose we take God at his word and we desire to become teachers. What are the characteristics of a godly teacher? Well, Paul is going to give us two pictures to help us think of a godly teacher. It's a picture of a loving mother and a loving father. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 7, says this. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also... How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Look with me back at verse 7. It said there, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of 
of our own children. So from Acts 17, we saw Paul taught the gospel of Jesus from the whole Bible, and at first the Thessalonians and then the Bereans devoted themselves to learning and applying Scripture. Okay? That was the what of Christian teaching and learning. Now, Paul's going to tell us both the how and the why. How does Paul teach the Thessalonians? He didn't actually explain it a whole lot in Acts 17. So he wrote a letter to the church at Thessalonica and he reminded them of how he taught them in hopes that they would follow his example and so teach others from the Bible. And he gives them these two pictures. First, it says in verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother. I want you to imagine for just a minute uh, an odd situation. You go over to a house of someone who has an infant. We'll say uh, between three and four months old, okay? And uh, I happen to you know, be able to relate to that because I have a little infant over here about to turn three months old. <laughs> um, and, and suppose you come over and you hear this, this little baby just wailing, crying. I mean, little lungs, they, they're figuring out that pitch where it kind of makes your hairs on the back of your neck stand up because they just are able to hit that pitch. But the mother is making no move to do anything with her baby. And, and it, it gets kind of awkward. And, and so, you know, um, you, you ask, hey, what's going on? And, and the mother says, oh, he's hungry. It's time to feed him. And the baby just continues to cry and cry. I mean, to, to turning the volume up. And, and uh, you, you know, you, you go ahead and ask, well, are you going to feed him? <laughs> and uh, the mom says, nope. And you say, well, well why not? And she says, well, because he's got to learn that crying is no way to treat his mother. When he can ask me politely, then I will feed him. Now, now, would you say, bravo, mom, that's a way to hold the line with your son. He needs to say to you, mom, may I please have some milk and then you'll feed him. No, none of us in here would, would praise the mom. We would actually wonder if she'd gone nuts because no nursing mother requires the infant to use an English sentence politely in order to be fed. All babies can do is cry. That's the only vocabulary they have. And Paul takes this image of a mother who patiently endures the crying and the wailing of a nursing child to say, that's how I was with y'all when I was first there. What did he mean? It means he was gentle. He was patient. He didn't demand hard things of them right away. And he gave a for instance. He says, for instance, when I was there, I mean, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ at this point. He could have said, y'all need to pay me for this preaching. But he didn't. He worked Monday through Friday so as not to be a burden and to provide for his own needs. And then he preached to them on the weekend. And in that way, he was very gentle among them. We talked about how last week, one of the best ways to help someone trust in Jesus is to love God and to love them. That's the right environment. And this, I think, is reinforced with this image of a patient nursing mother. That is also the characteristic of a godly teacher. Gentle, not making harsher demands. This is a, a picture of grace. 
that's not the only picture. Look in verse 11 and 12 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul also says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Not only was Paul patient and gentle and gracious, like a nursing mother with her infant son, Paul was also loving like a father with conviction and truth. So look at the words, and you might underline these. It said first he exhorted them. That, that is a strong urging. And then it says he encouraged them. That is he, he cheered them on. You can do it. Good job. Keep going. And he charged them. That is, he called on God as witness to encourage them in the way they were going. Now, regardless of the type of father, the type of mother you had, I think you can catch the flavor of what the Bible is trying to communicate here. A a loving mother, gentle, gracious, compassionate, not making harsh demands. A loving father, cheering them on, but also urging them to grow in the scriptures and calling God as witness as he warned them not to return to sin. So how did Paul teach them? How do we teach someone in a godly way? With grace, like a loving mother, and with truth, like a loving father. That's the how. Why? Why should we bother with Christian teaching? Why should we we have this life of learning? Why do we need this as part of our discipling? Well, it's in verse 12. Why? In order to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul didn't just want to teach them facts so that the, the Thessalonians would be the coveted person on your Christian Bible trivia night, right? Like, he did teach them facts, but the teaching had this dangerous urging to it. It was dangerous to their previous sins. Paul repeatedly and unashamedly urged them to grow into the character of Christ because that was part of their learning. Here's the bottom line. To be a faithful Christian teacher be it in a formal church context or with your own kids or grandkids or neighbor, we must teach with both the grace of a loving mother and the truth of a loving father so that we teach others to learn Jesus. It's at this point that I got to step back and say, you know, maybe we need to define the word learning. And I actually liked this definition, even though it came from a secular psychologist. I thought it was very good. Her name, Susan Ambrose, defined learning this way. She said, it is a process that leads to change, which occurs as a result of experience and increases the potential of both improved performance and future learning. I'll say that again. Learning is a process that leads to change, which occurs as a result of experience and increases the potential of improved performance and future learning. So let's, let's take that and define now what we mean by Christian learning. Christian learning, then, is a lifelong process of better understanding God and myself from Scripture that leads to change as one is transformed into the character of Christ. Learning 
implies change. What that means is if, if I have learning, but I have no transformation, I haven't really had learning, right? I've, I've only had fascination. Um, just being curious and, and being able to talk about new facts from church, that's not learning. Learning happens when those facts sink so deep in that it changes the way I live. That's learning Jesus. When you come to church, come to learn. When you read your Bible, read to learn. Don't just come to, to be fascinated or, or to say, well, that was an interesting story. I, I mean, I promise you, we've got some very gifted preachers here who can tell interesting stories, but their goal is not that you just go, wow, what, what a fascinating message today. No, no, don't stop there. The goal is that we be transformed into worshipers of Jesus Christ. And keep learning, right? When have we arrived in our learning? When, when we can say honestly before Jesus Christ that we are completely walking in a manner worthy of God, then we're arrived. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that tells me learning is a lifelong process because I just can't imagine saying honestly and humbly that I have arrived. I'm completely walking in a manner worthy of God. Hey, imagine this for a second. Imagine you, you embrace this role of teaching and you, you pick one of these two images, whether it's mother or father. Say the mother one. You teach like a mother, but you don't want to teach like a father. What would be missing from that equation? Well, if Paul taught like a nursing mother only and not like a loving father, then his teaching would have lacked the urging, the cheering on, the, the charging them to turn from sin. Paul may have become incredibly popular because his messages would have just sounded so good. But the church at Thessalonica would have been light on sin and on repentance. They would shy away from stepping on toes. There'd be a lot of grace, but very little truth and very little urgency. Those learning may have left feeling that God approved of their sin. Now suppose that Paul taught them like a father only. No, no gentle nursing mother. Well, what would be missing from that picture? Well, well, Paul would have known as a man of passionate truth who crushes people under the weight of it rather than encouraging them. Paul would have been known as a teacher who knows his Bible, but not as a loving man. Those listening to a message that is all father and no mother would have left feeling unloved, uncared for, and that maybe God was perpetually disappointed with them rather than willing to forgive. So Paul taught both as a gentle nursing mother and as a loving father in order that they would learn Jesus. So this morning, there's two avenues of commitment here. We are, as followers of Jesus Christ, both disciples and disciplers. That is, we are walking with Jesus, and we are seeking to help others walk with Jesus. And I'm going to talk first about what is your next step as a learner? A disciple learns. What is your next step? Well, it may just be that you need to commit to a life of thinking. It may be that you need to commit to a life of thinking. 
Did you know that committing to follow Jesus as Lord implies submitting the areas of your life under his lordship? And then in order to know which areas of your life are not under Jesus' lordship, that requires a lifetime of learning? I've, I've thought about it this way. If God got all the change done in me, the instant I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, my head would probably explode. Or, or I'd just melt into a pile of goo. Right? Like, like the change that he works in me takes a lifetime. This sanctifying process. And that's why I am committed to learning for a lifetime. Because I'm transformed as I come to know more and more the holiness of God. And that combination of His holiness and His grace is what powerfully transforms me. So, shallow thinking about God robs us of the joy of living practically under the Lordship of Christ. Shallow thinking about God robs us of the joy of living under the practical lordship of Jesus Christ. In countless ways, we have thoughts, motives, words, habits, tendencies, actions, choices, personalities, and lifestyles that go against the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what's worse, because we have formed habits in these, we're probably unaware of where we are not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why we need to be committed to a life of thinking more and more biblically. A disciple learns, and that learning guides us in to deeper joy. I told you I was indebted for this message to John Piper's little book, Think. This is what he says when he urges deep biblical thinking. Deep biblical thinking will help rescue the victims of evangelical pragmatism, Pentecostal shortcuts, pietistic anti-intellectualism, pluralistic conviction aversion, academic gamesmanship, therapeutic Bible evasion, journalistic bite-sizing, musical mesmerizing, YouTube craving, and postmodern jello juggling. In other words, I believe thinking is good for the church in every way. <laughs> if you want to see it in the Psalms, this is how I think the Bible says it. The psalmist prays this, Lord, may you be praised. Teach me your statutes. This is from Psalm 119, verse 12. The psalmist begs God to teach him the Bible. And then he says, I will praise you with a sincere heart when I learn your righteous judgments. In verse 7, he's asking God to help him learn. In verse 15, it says, I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. Verse 15 is a commitment to thinking about God. So maybe you first need to just commit to a life of thinking about God. Second, maybe you need to join a Bible study group. Paul's teaching wasn't done when the Thessalonians or Bereans joined or uh, uh, believed in Jesus Christ. Right? Uh, apparently, the teaching and, and the discipling included helping them become a church. You say, well, how do you know that, Jared? I mean, that's not in Acts 17. Well, because we got two letters to the church of the Thessalonians. Right? In other words, it was clear that Paul wanted them to join and to become a church. This is because God wants to give us the gift of learning together. 
It's exactly what we see happening in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, did they devote themselves to reading their Bibles privately? I'm sure they did. But not only to reading their Bibles privately. They also devoted to meeting together and learning together. At Redemption Church, before the service at 9.15, we have Bible study groups in order to help us learn Jesus from all of Scripture. We have some excellent teachers in these groups, and I uh, kind of move around to, to get um, be involved in each one of them. But there's, there's groups for ladies and for men, for young and for old. There's, there's going to be people who get to know you, and they pray for you. gives you a good opportunity to open the Bible and ask some questions and to explore how the Bible intersects with your life. That's at 9.15 on Sunday mornings. And then on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock, we have a time to learn the Bible. One of the things that we do is we use catechisms, not catacombs like where people are buried, catechisms. Uh, it's just a question and answer. Here's a question about the Christian faith. Here's an answer. And we do it all together. And it's a wonderful way to learn together. That's Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. Maybe your action step today is you need to commit to join a Bible study group. Maybe your action step is you need to get back to reading the Bible and reading great Christian books. Remember what happened in Berea? It said they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I want you to imagine when you are reading the Bible for yourself, that's like getting a spiritual meal. Some of us try to survive, spiritually speaking, on just a tiny bite of food once or twice a week. And it's little wonder that spiritually, we're weak. We're, our body, or in terms of our spirit, is not getting enough food. Like if I said to my wife, hey, I like food, but I'm just going to eat two bites a week, she wouldn't say, well, that's good. That's a, that's a great, you know, food pyramid for you. No, you need more than that to sustain you. Well, we need more than one or two verses on our phone a week. It's little wonder that some Christians are spiritually starving. The point is, eat a good helping of Scripture each day. I'm not going to be legalistic about it as if you have to read X, Y, or Z, but you need a good helping of Scripture. Enough in you to counteract all of the worldly thinking that comes your way throughout the day. Uh, I highly recommend for those of you who don't have one, a good study Bible. I brought uh, the ESV study Bible in here, not because I'm employed by Crossway, but because I think it is one of the best. A study Bible just gives you some helpful notes to understand what you're reading. Uh, I also highly recommend reading good Christian books. We have a little lending library out my right, your left. All of those are available. You don't have to pay for them. You take them, you read them, you bring them back or share them with something else. Books are not made to sit on a shelf. They're made to be read and applied. And those are good ones. I also have up here a few examples of some good Christian books. And then for those of you who want to see it, I, I made a list of 40 great books. Now, these books are accessible. That is, they're not written at like you have to have a doctorate to be able to understand it. So if you want, there's copies of a list of books here. 
Maybe your action step is to read the Bible more and to dive into a great Christian book. I've argued this morning that learning is a lifelong commitment, and I want to remind you of something. The Jews charged Paul and Silas because they were committed to teaching and the Thessalonians to learning that they were turning the world upside down. Turning the world upside down because they were learning and thinking about God. Maybe your action step this morning. You know what God's been calling you to do. It's time to do it. Maybe your step in learning is there's an area of your life that has gone unrepented of for a while. Let the gospel be dangerous to you this morning, dangerous to your sin. Let the lordship of Jesus Christ have sway over you to where that sin is repented of and laid at the cross. That's your commitment to learn. What about teaching? This is a commitment to help others think. I know not everyone is called to be a formal teacher, but every Christian can help someone think better. Saul wanted to teach his son to think God's way. And so he said this, My son, if you receive my words, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Christian, when you love someone else, when you're committed to loving God and loving others, a natural next step is that you want to help them by teaching them. And I'd say your first commitment should be, God, help me to be gentle like a nursing mother, but also committed to truth like a loving father. If you say, well, I don't feel like a teacher, my action step for you this morning may be that you say, God, help me to trust you enough to teach somebody else. Maybe your action step is to help others in a Bible study group. We have not only Bible study groups for adults, but also for children. And, and there's some teachers there, but all of them could use helpers. Your action step may be to come to one of the pastors and say, you know, I don't know exactly how to teach the Bible, but if you'll help me, I'm willing to learn so that I can teach some kids or some others the Bible. That would be an excellent step. Maybe your action step is as a family or with your grandkids to have family devotions. One of the reasons we do this little kids time here and the way we've structured Wednesday nights is to model having family devotions. Right up here, I'm just reading out of the book by Sally Lloyd-Jones called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I'd highly recommend it. Reading pieces of the Bible at an age-appropriate way is teaching the Bible to a next generation. Maybe your action step could be that you're going to be ready by daily reading your Bible. Here's what I mean. There's always um, formal and informal teaching, and many of us uh, equate teaching with a classroom and desks and tests and things like that. A lot of your teaching is going to come up in informal opportunities. You're not going to be fully expecting them. How do you to be ready for those that's where a daily quiet time helps a teacher as well. Because when you're in the Word every day, you can be ready 
when that opportunity seems to come to you from out of nowhere. And a final action step is read a great Christian book with someone. I've got up here a few, you can feel free to come take a look, but I've got The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, an excellent book if you want to talk with somebody about finances God's way. I've got Discipling by Mark Dever, which is the book that this series is based on. I've got Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. How do you grow in things like reading your Bible and in prayer? I've got Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper, a fantastic book on risking for the kingdom. And I've got In Light of Eternity, a book on heaven by Randy Alcorn. Maybe yours is to get one of these and just invite someone to read it with you. That's a great way to begin teaching. So this morning we said that Paul and Silas were accused of turning the world upside down by teaching the Bible. We said that teaching the Bible is dangerous truth to a world in rebellion against God. It's dangerous to my sin. You know, it's so dangerous throughout church history, those who have sought to get Scripture into people's hands and teach the Bible have been persecuted. This week marked the anniversary of William Tyndale's death. On October 6, 1536, William Tyndale was first strangled to death, and then his body was burned at the stake. Now, what did Tyndale do that deserved like a double execution at the end of his life. In fact, Tyndale was apparently such a terrible criminal that he had been locked in solitary confinement in jail for 500 days. When he asked uh, for some things in a letter, he asked for a candle because it is so lonely in the dark. What did this dangerous criminal do? He devoted his life to teaching the Bible and to providing the Bible in English. As he taught the Bible in England, he noticed that it was a losing battle to only have the Bible in Latin. He wanted every Englishman to be able to read the Bible for themselves. As John Fox put it in his famous book of martyrs, Tyndale increased as well in the knowledge of tongues and other liberal arts as especially in the knowledge of the scriptures, whereunto his mind was singularly addicted Tyndale had to flee, and from Germany and Worms, he uh, had his New Testament in English printed and smuggled back into England in bales of cotton until it was everywhere all over England. This work was dangerous because it threatened the works-based religion of Roman Catholicism, offering people an opportunity to learn of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It was so dangerous that he was betrayed by a friend, arrested, imprisoned, and executed. And I would say that was a life well lived. If you're reading an English Bible today, you, like me, are indebted to the life of William Tyndale, a man committed to helping us know God from the Scriptures. I'm going to pray and close us out here in just a minute. But as we pray, would you talk with God about your next step in learning and in teaching? I don't know what it is, but you do. Ask God what he wants you to do, and then we'll close this service. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful for your word. Jesus, I think about the walk that you have been with me on and I mean, you know, God, I, I just, 
I wasn't a reader. <laughs> I used that as an excuse for a while. Um, and you did a work. I'm so grateful for it. First, I pray for me and I pray for every Christian in here that you make us hungry for your word. Make us aware if we are spiritually starving because we just need more Bible. God, I pray that you would use this learning not just to fill our heads but to change our lives as we trust Jesus, as we worship you, God, and as we surrender our lives to you. Jesus, would you have your hand on us right now? It's in your name we pray. Amen.